What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, they call me the hip hopopotamus. My lyrics are bottomless. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. This is Forward Thinking. We talk about the future of stuff. And today we wanted to talk about the future of something that's really near and dear to my heart. Uh, uh, specifically, it's, it's wildlife conservation. And... Uh, it's important to talk about this because there's some some pr- rough data out there that suggests that lots of different species may be in some pretty particular danger, right? Oh, sure. And and we can never say that species are in no danger at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the natural extin- extinction happens all the time. Sure. Yes, well, as a uh, great uh, wolf spirit who talks to me from the clouds once said... Death is just a part of life. It is. So, you know, you could never expect to live in a world where no species of organisms ever dwindle or go extinct because extinction is a pretty straightforward consequence of evolution. You Mm -hmm. know, some 
species are competing for resources. Sometimes some species are going to become ascendant. Others are going to go on the decline. Sure. If a species fills a niche that another species was heading toward, then that other species might be edged out of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Right. This may go extinct. So there is throughout history, and we can sort of infer this from the fossil record Mm -hmm. and and different uh, clues we have about the history of life on Earth, that extinction has pretty much been steady, except there are periods when it sort of goes into overdrive. Oh, yeah. And and these have been happening for a long time, a long time before humans got. Yeah, hundreds of millions of years. So you've got the steady background extinction rate where some small number of species on Earth just kind of go extinct Mm -hmm. every year. But then there are periods where suddenly... Lots of species go extinct. And these can be bad for multiple reasons that we can get into in a minute. But so what causes these huge extinctions? They're usually referred to as mass extinctions. Typically, I think it's it's catastrophic environmental changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of cases, we don't know exactly for sure what caused them. but We have some pretty good ideas. Usually, it's things like space impacts, uh, geothermal activity or volcanic eruptions, or maybe even this is a weird idea coal fire eruptions. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah. It's just one hypothesis about uh, what could have been partially responsible for some past extinctions Mm. if there were massive eruptions of of coal beds on Earth. Gotcha. And then, of course, simply through climate change, too. And climate change can be a result of those other things I just mentioned. And we should also point out, I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of this, but mass extinctions, that doesn't mean that one day a ton of species just suddenly died out. Mass mm-hmm. extinctions can take course over hundreds of thousands of years, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Still, that that's geologically pretty quick. Sure. Mm-hmm. Geologically, it's a blink of an eye. But for, you know, a human being, like, it's hard for us to, to, uh, to reconcile those two things, like the idea of a bunch of species relatively suddenly in the geological phase mm-hmm. uh, going extinct. But in, in human life terms, it seems like and a really long time. Ages and ages. Yeah. 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 And so unfortunately, a lot of scientists have recently come to the conclusion that we are actually in the middle of one of those periods right now, what many have referred to as the sixth mass extinction. There have been five already, and we're currently in another one. Uh, yeah. If you want to hear a whole bunch about this topic, our colleague Christian Sager did a video interview with the Gizmodo editor-in-chief, Annalee Newitz, all about it last year at DragonCon. And it's up on the HowStuffWorks YouTube channel. We'll try to remember to link it on social, but, but, uh, but a few kind of basic facts in brief here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things is the current extinction rate grossly exceeds what has been referred to as the background extinction rate. So you have this steady, ongoing background extinction rate. When things are normal, you can expect X number of species to go extinct every year. According to a May 2014 study published in the journal Science, the current extinction rates are roughly 1,000 times the background rate of extinction. Yeah, that does seem like that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. So uh, according to a claim I found coming from the WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature or the World Wildlife Fund, it goes by both names, Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with wrestling. Right. It's a conservation group. According to their 2014 Living Planet report, vertebrate species on Earth, so that's going to be like, you know, tetrapods, mammals, fish, amphibians, birds, birds, yeah, had declined 52% in the last 40 years. That's incredible. 
I what? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not in a good kind of incredible. No. 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 Nope. So what would be a, a contributing factor to this? I mean, what what were there conclusions about what might be you know causing this this extinction? Well, I think it is a very common conclusion reached by scientists who study this area that the current mass extinction event is believed to be largely related to human activity. There might be other factors, mm-hmm. but human behavior is playing a huge role in it. It might be the the single most important driving force. Uh, and it's not that we're just like eating all the animals no no yeah it's not just direct extermination or capturing of of wildlife though that does happen like poaching and hunting can play a role i think what's thought to be more commonly the problem is the unintended consequences of human civilization and behavior leading to things like humans bringing invasive species into new habitats or humans sure. destroying habitats. Right, converting or, converting land into farmland yeah. and then you remove the ecosystem that supported the various species in that area. Yeah, mm-hmm. cutting or, down forests, draining swamps. Or, or creating factories that are going to have an impact on the climate. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so climate change is also going to be a huge one when mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, changing the environmental conditions in the places where these animals live. You don't even have to destroy the place where they live if you just maybe make it warmer or make the water more acidic or something like this. These long downstream changes that occur because of global warming, that can result in damage to wildlife too. All right. Well, let's let's take an example of somebody who doesn't see the value of any particular species of animal. Let's say that – all right. Let's say there's uh, some sort of weird – amphibian that I'm just not really keen on. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. It makes this loud noise <laughs> at night. I wouldn't really mind if it just went away. What is the big deal? Yeah, that's a common expression you hear. And I know that's not your feeling, Jonathan, but I no. think a lot of people have this kind of, oh, you know, these people trying to get upset over some toad or why are people making such a big deal about some owl? I've never even seen one of these. What does it matter in my life? <laughs> Even if you are not an animal lover and you don't personally have feelings about, you know, the spotted owl or whatever animal it is that's being threatened, this should matter to you because loss of biodiversity can potentially cause unpredictable chain reaction effects on ecosystems, which might come to have a great impact on human life even if you're not a nature lover. So I just came up with a totally hypothetical, dreamed-up example to show the kind of thing I mean. Okay, let, let me hear your example. Okay, so... Pray make it improbable. How about, let's imagine a bat. It is the okay. Strickland reticulated bat. Like it already. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and reticulated, of course, meaning has a little netting pattern on its wings. Ooh. That's as it Excellent. Should. Right. Yeah. So, Strickland reticulated bat. It goes endangered because humans in its natural range set up a football stadium. And the amplifier system of this football stadium produces ultrasonic frequencies that interfere with the bat's echolocation hunting. Ooh, that's no good. Nope. The bats can't hunt. They starve and they disappear from the area. So maybe they're either just gone from their former range and they've had to move somewhere else or maybe they're totally extinct. The primary food of the Strickland reticulated bat happens to be insect prey, like mosquitoes. Without the bats to control the population of mosquitoes, the mosquito populations almost immediately spiral out of control. 
As the mosquito populations boom, they expand their range and swarm in on the settled locations outside the area, and that includes maybe the football stadium. So they swarm in on the sports fans, yeah, and bite it, them, suck their blood. It's delicious blood. And I, I normally I would say it serves those rotten sports fans right for driving out this beautiful creature from the region. However, that would be very short-sighted of me to say that. Sure it would, because in doing so, what if the mosquitoes happened to bring in a virus that was previously only present in some reservoir species out in the wilderness where these mosquitoes were previously confined to because they were being hunted effectively by the bats? Uh, yeah, and this, this happens a lot. There's a lot of animal disease that can transfer to humans from things like bats that don't get sick from that disease. Exactly. So imagine there is a mutant strain of hemorrhagic fever virus that loves to live in skunks, the mosquito's previous favorite blood source. The mosquitoes drink the blood of the skunks, then they fly to the stadium, drink the blood of the humans, spread the skunk fever, and now we're all bleeding out the eyes with skunk fever because we did not care about the bats. So what you're saying is that by driving out the bats, we have inadvertently caused the zombie apocalypse to descend upon us. The bloody-eyed zombie apocalypse, yes. I knew it. Now, I don't want to be pinned as a sensationalist. (laughs) 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 So let me remind you, I just made this up, and I don't know if that specific scenario could actually happen, but it illustrates the type of thing that can happen in ecosystems, because ecosystems are incredibly complex. Even animals within ecosystems that don't interact with one another directly are interdependent in complex ways based on other intermediary creatures. Mm. And removing one species can set off chain reactions that affect the others. Oh, yeah. Right. So I actually have another example that I can give very quickly. This is one I mentioned in the video about um, about uh, shark conservation, mm-hmm. which kind of served as the inspiration for this more broad approach to the topic. And that is uh, if you overfish sharks, and by the way, a 100 million sharks are caught every year uh, in various fisheries. So if you overfish sharks, then you r- reduce the number of predators in various ecosystems. And in ecosystems that have seagrass, for example, that means the foraging animals – will have nothing, no predators to to cull their numbers. And so they'll eat all the seagrass, which is great for one generation of animals. But then there's no more seagrass. So no more generations of those animals are going to be able to use that particular region to forage for food and, because it's all gone. Yeah, and, and nothing else that would normally live in that seagrass is going to be able to live there anymore. Yeah, right. So, you you know, that's why even something like a predator is really important because it does keep these systems in balance. Of course. So the next time you hear somebody ask, like, oh, why should I care about this one animal? It's just some dumb animal. I, you know, there are lots of other types of owls who... Who gives a care? Yeah, uh, who, r- remind them of the zombie apocalypse. Well, yeah, we, what you can remind them is that every time an animal goes endangered or goes extinct, it's not just a threat to that species. It's a threat to system stability. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of like if you said, well, I'm riding on a bus, and what if I removed at random one part from this bus? It might be a bolt somewhere. Yeah. It might be something like that. Maybe the bus could keep going fine without that part. Maybe it wouldn't. You don't know. Right. And because these systems are so complex, most of the time we would say, well, we know something will happen. We just don't know to what extent. Mm-hmm. And it might be catastrophic. So that's one of the reasons why you should really care about conservation, even if for some reason you don't care about lovely cuttable 
animals that are wonderful and need our love. So um, <laughs> one of the we, we wanted to talk about what we might be doing in the future to help wildlife conservation. One of the things I wanted to cover very briefly, because we don't always just talk about science and technology. I know that that often is what we focus on on the show, but really we look at all elements of the future. One of the things we need to think about is policy. And there are a lot of countries out there that have uh, various types of, of policies about conservation or uh, agencies or organizations that oversee that within that country. And then there's the United Nations, which has its own group called the United Nations Environment Program. And within that, they have the World Conservation Monitoring Center, which helps coordinate studies and promote projects that support biodiversity and the protection of ecosystems around the world. And in fact, they have a very ambitious project. Uh, they're looking to create a global connectivity conservation strategy. So when we talk about this complex web that all these different uh, species end up being part of, they're trying to kind of map some of that out. And that's a Herculean task. I mean, that's what biology has been doing for, for since there's been biologists. Yeah. But uh, it's, they're looking to identify fragmented habitats of various species as well. So let's say that there is a region within a country where there are two different populations of the same species that used to coexist in the same general geographic region, but because of the way humans have moved in, it's divided that up now. They're looking at ways where they might be able to reconnect these habitats to help make these populations more healthy so there can be greater uh, genetic diversity and biodiversity as well. So they're looking at strategies to support governments and stakeholders to protect ecological systems, stakeholders being Anyone who would be affected by these sort of policies, how can you turn it into an incentive as opposed to something that people are going to uh, oppose because it could impact their plans on either making a profit or expansion or whatever it may be? Because uh, these are delicate matters. I mean, it's not always a, a cut and dry case. Like we like to simplify the narrative. Like it's it's the evil developer who wants to ruin a, a swamp in order to create a multi-million dollar complex. Oh, That's yeah. not always the it's case. It's not always Fern Gully, well, the last rainforest. No. But. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, the, these are just people who are trying to make a living and they're not thinking about it. Well, they're, sure. In some cases, they're not even aware of what the risks are. And in some cases, it's balancing things. It may be like, no, we wanted to turn that into a state-of-the-art hospital, which our citizens have never had in the history of ever. And it's hard to say to people, yeah, yeah. Like, like, you like, can't have that. Yeah, you can't have a really awesome uh, neonatal wing because right. of a toad. Yeah, and that, it is difficult. It does mean that that's why this group is looking to find ways and strategies to help governments so that they can accomplish the goals they need to accomplish without also impacting the environment in a negative way. So they're looking to establish sound scientific foundation upon which they can build this collection of policy and legislative tools, plus the incentives to use those tools that governments can use to promote conservation. So I think it's a really uh, forward thinking approach, actually, uh, you know, just to title line. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> hey, you said the title of the podcast. Um, <laughs> Back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So uh, I think it really is is a very uh, smart way of moving forward because it's it's establishing that, yes, we need to make sure that the decisions we make are evidence based, that they mm -hmm. are science based. They're not they're not just knee jerk reactions, but in fact, have have uh, uh, research behind them to show that this is, in fact, the, the best option. Sure. And. 
there's a real need for that in these types of cases because when animals are threatened, you know, uh, your little cuddling uh, monologue earlier yeah. was a good indication of the fact that these topics are likely to involve our feelings. Yes. That, to excite our emotions and to make us feel empathy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it can be tough then to make a rational decision if you don't systematize your decision-making process. Yes. It, the goal is to remove bias as much as possible so that the decisions that you arrive at are are ones that that do make sense and are not, again, just an emotional reaction to something. Not to say that the emotional reaction would necessarily be the wrong one, but oh, this no. way this way you can at least say, no, 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 this demonstrably yeah. is the right way to go. Uh, also, even just, just getting all of that information just sharing it amongst different researchers and scientists and uh, geological surveyists and all of that stuff is really difficult to do. And of course, getting easier thanks to the internet and, you know, spreadsheets and stuff like that. But uh, classically, it's been very difficult to to pool all of that information in a useful way. Yeah, you would have these 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 concentrated areas where research would be really amazing and deep and, and broad. But not necessarily connected to another region that might be geologically quite close, but as far as research is concerned, could be, you know, decades away. Mm-hmm. It's This is actually very promising. And, and there are other policies I could point out. Like there are a lot of places around the world that are setting up various types of refuges, not just uh, not just for land animals, but also for sharks. I mean, there are areas that are specifically set aside that are protected waters for all different species or or Maybe not all, but most species of sharks. And uh, that's also very, very promising. And beyond policy, we do have some kind of interesting technology approaches that are helping people in efforts to conserve wildlife. And one of those is uh, your smartphone. Sure. And whether it's your smartphone or somebody else's smartphone, the basic idea here is apps, software, and technology that help enable citizen science and citizen participation Mm -hmm. in the scientific data gathering that we need to help protect species that are threatened. Right. Uh, The first example we have is uh, iNaturalist. And that's actually it's it's broader than just an app. It actually yeah. is it's an online social network that's made up of biologists and naturalists as well as citizen scientists. And they're really looking to map biodiversity and it's a platform upon which people can share observations. So you can have an app on your phone and when you are out in nature and you see you know evidence of various types of animals, you might use it to say, Hey, I saw this this type of creature at this place. And this gives biologists a, a, an incredible tool, an ability mm-hmm. to really kind of see in real time what the the various uh, density populations are by, based upon the number of reports they might see. So as more people use it and as more people report on the animals they see, you can see either an increase in reports might show that there's a population that's on the rise. A decrease could show that perhaps there's a population that's in trouble. It could also show the evidence of of, uh, encroaching species, invasive species. So really interesting. It could just give you a better idea about what the natural range of a species is. I mean, in some cases, when you think about it, like 
How do you determine the range of a species? I mean, that's not as easy to do as you might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you go out and walk over every square foot of ground and say, okay, don't see any more here, yeah, so that, I guess that, this is the end. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, it makes me think of whenever you look up uh, a, a particular species and you see where its range tends to be, mm-hmm. and it will give it, like here in the United States, you'll usually get a, a, a list of states that that animal can be found in. And then you just think, well, what would happen if I were in a neighboring state and saw this where I just say, hey, you don't belong here. Yeah. <laughs> you need to pick up and move 20 miles to the yeah. east, buddy. Get back all these, to Montana, sucker. <laughs> all these Go brown recluses in my house biting me. They're not even supposed to be here. <laughs> I think we found the next sci-fi I channel have, movie. I have arachnozenophobia. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but yeah, this, this means that biologists would have – would be able to leverage a tool that a lot of different industries have been leveraging. The fact that – Using crowd-generated data to help get a better understanding of what's going on. We talk about this all the time with the Internet of Things, and usually we're talking about understanding systems so that you can build more efficient infrastructure or, or tools or whatever it may be. In this case, we're actually talking about expanding our knowledge of a particular science. So that's pretty cool. Uh, another one that we can talk about is O-Search, uh, which is uh, the one I referred to in the shark conservation video. It's pretty cool. This is an app that lets you track tagged sharks. So there are shark tagging expeditions where people will go out, catch a shark, uh, bring it on board, tag it with essentially a a beacon that lets you know where that shark Mm -hmm. is, release it, and then they track where the shark goes in order to learn more about shark migratory patterns and predatory patterns, where it tends to go at any given time of year. And these guys get around. So there are a lot of examples of sharks that – were captured off the coast of uh, like uh, New England and then released. And then later on in the year end up in the Bahamas, which tells us that the plot to Jaws 4 is a little more realistic than I had anticipated. Not I thought you – by very much. No, not by a lot. <laughs> it does have – you know, any movie that has Michael Caine in it, you have to – you know, figure, well, maybe there's more legitimacy than I originally thought. <laughs> Did it explain Michael Caine's instant uh, clothing drying technology? It did not, nor did it uh, go into detail about how you could ram a sailboat through a great white shark. But at any rate, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, um, uh, at any rate, it, it is really neat and you can actually – track lots of different sharks. You can see all of them at once. You know, essentially they're all like these dots in the ocean or you can focus on a specific shark and then even set a parameter on there to say, well, let me see everywhere this shark has been over the last six months. And it'll give you kind of like that Indiana Jones travel line uh-huh. of where the shark has been throughout that time. It's really cool. And um, I'm hopeful that uh, a buddy of mine who is a, a shark marine biologist, he does these. He goes out and does these wow. shark tagging oh, expeditions. Cool. And and he has told me at Dragon Con that if I'm interested, I should get in touch with him and I could go on one. Whoa. So, so if you guys want to go on a shark tagging expedition, Dragon Con's coming up again. And I believe he's a guest. So I'll talk to him and see if we can wrangle ourselves a, a three-person shark tagging trip. Wow. I, I want that indescribably much. Okay. I'll talk to him. Okay. We'll see what we can do. So Is his boat called the Orca? 
Because uh, I think I saw one of these three-person expeditions. I mean, he, he did come up to me and he said, he said, I said, could I go? And he says, I'm talking about working for a living. I'm talking yeah. about sharking. Right. He wanted two cases of apricot brandy. Yeah. And $10,000. Um, no, uh, he has not spoken to me about such things, but – I'll I'll try and see if uh, we can we can actually arrange something because he he was very much of the opinion that the more people who participate in this, the more they learn mm-hmm. about how important sharks are in their various ecosystems, and the less they are prone to being afraid of them. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so of course there are plenty more conservation apps than the ones we just mentioned. Yeah, there's some that are specifically meant to help curtail poaching and uh, trafficking in animals or animal parts. Yeah. Uh, there's one called Wildlife Guardian that's that's just one example. That's a smartphone app that's specifically meant to help uh, curtail that in China. Yeah, I feel like I've read that some of these are designed to let people anonymously report things so they don't feel like fear of reprisal right. if they were to – It's essentially kind of filing it with law enforcement so that the law enforcement officials can make a point to, to – follow up on that Mm -hmm. and it takes the responsibility off the shoulder of the person who witnesses this and it puts it onto the law enforcement agencies. So hopefully if they are doing their duty, they can then go in and make sure that this operation stops. Yeah. And of course, another great technological frontier in conservation is going to be stuff like satellite imaging and geographic information systems or GIS. Have you ever heard about the GIS field? No, but I imagine it has something to do with uh, tracking changes to environments. Well, it could be changes or it could be static data, but it it can definitely help us monitor changes to environments because the basic idea behind GIS is that you're combining maps and geospatial representations with data. Gotcha. Uh, So it's like data augmented map systems. It's for cataloging, analyzing tracking and updating data about geographic areas. So you might have a GIS system that looks at a certain area and then looks at the terrain and then looks at how the, you know, the watershed uh, in the area works. Or, or maybe the, the borders of a jungle might change over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And, or yeah. whether there's been erosion or... Yeah, and you can combine data layers... Mm-hmm. With maps like these. So if you're, you're trying to track relationships between different types of data points with uh, relation to the geography, you can combine your data and say, oh, that's weird. Now we can look at, you know, lightning strikes happening in this area and how that corresponds to the number of toads that begin flying. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And then uh, there are other efforts too, right? I mean, there's other ways of using technology in conservation efforts, um, some of which get really hands-on. Yeah, mm. sure. And are also using that kind of uh, satellite connection, but in a slightly different way. There are some efforts that are outfitting animals like mountain lions and bears and coyotes and wolves with smart collars, which are, you know, c- kind of like your fitness tracker, but, uh, you know, a little bit bigger. Um, and for, uh, and for wolves and, you know, and, and equipped with, uh, GPS trackers and accelerometers and sometimes even cameras so that they can help conservationists learn about these animals' behaviors and, and their movements and their sleeping patterns and their interactions with other animals up to and including humans. The, the hope here is to learn enough to prevent human encroachment on really important animal territories mm-hmm. and even to begin 
predicting behavior and sending out warnings. Like, for example, uh, if, if a mountain lion is ranging really close to a town, they could warn locals to keep their pets inside and also, you know, gently remind them about hunting laws. Yeah, this would also be great to uh, like. Honestly, one of the things that I love about technology is that it gives us so many more opportunities to capture wonderful moments in our lives. But one of the things I hate about technology is sometimes it gives us these opportunities to capture wonderful moments in our lives <laughs> to the point where we will put ourselves in danger in order to capture that moment. Mm-hmm. And by this, of course, I'm referring to the numerous stories we have seen of people attempting to take a selfie with a wild animal in the background of that of that photo. And we've heard more than enough stories of people being hurt or worse in these sort of encounters. And my hope would be this sort of thing would also be a way of reminding people, hey, there are times where sometimes wildlife and human settlements are coming into, like they're overlapping because of various reasons. Uh, this is not an opportunity for you to go out and get that amazing picture of you with this wild animal. They are wild animals. And we will try and deal with this in a way that preserves the safety of both the people and the animals as much as we can. But in order to do that, we have to have you (laughs) play a part in that and not try and rush out and get your bear selfie. Huh. There's so many animals that you shouldn't try to get selfies with. Yeah, I just Googled running of the bulls selfie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's plenty. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's a, well... I have a lot of feelings about the running of the bulls, but I won't I won't go into them here. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I I've heard of ones about people wanting to get their picture taken when they see a bear or when they see. Uh, I think you know, a bison was in. The there was news a bison recent week. one. Yeah. There was a ram that that oh. injured somebody. Yeah. So these are just reminders, right? That that we need to have these systems in place so that we can. Try to protect everyone involved. Not obviously, not just the animals. That's another thing I often see that people are like, "Well, why don't you care about people?" No, no, we we care about people too. Yeah, it's it's not a an either or thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is an and thing. Sure. Uh, so one of the other technologies we can talk about are drones. Those are being used by a few different organizations to help with conservation efforts, both to just keep an eye on populations and see how they're doing, uh, monitor their health without. Uh, getting too close to them. Also, you might be able to uh, access areas that otherwise would be very difficult to get to through other means and without having to use larger aircraft like helicopters or planes because often you have to fly at pretty low altitudes in order to get an eye on these populations. And with something like a helicopter, one of the points that people were making is that with a with a drone, you can fly at these low altitudes and not risk human life if something goes wrong. Whereas with a helicopter, if something goes wrong, because you're flying at a low altitude, you have very little time to recover. So this would be one way of keeping an eye on animals without putting human lives at danger. And you could do it from uh, a remote location. Uh, it still obviously takes a lot of training to be able to fly a drone effectively. Not all of these drones are are rotor drones. Some of them are look more like an airplane than they do a helicopter. Um, and uh, also, you can use them not just to keep an eye on the populations, but also to look out for poachers. So in areas where poaching is a problem, you might be able to use drones to locate and identify poachers and, uh, and that way alert whatever regulatory agency is in charge of keeping a, a lid on that to 
go and investigate. Uh, yeah, there's also some material science technology that's going into decreasing poaching in yeah. wild populations. Yeah, this is really kind of interesting. Uh, you may have heard about this story about how essentially there are people who are 3D printing rhinoceros horns. And they're creating synthetic rhinoceros horns uh, using some rhino DNA as part of it. Mm-hmm. And they are physically identical to actual rhino horns. Oh, like wow. if, if you were to test them, that would be a rhino horn. It's just it's synthetic. And so there's some people who are hoping to use synthetic rhino horn to flood markets that value the rhino horn. I mean, I think it's like $5,000 a gram in some Chinese oh markets. Wow. So if you were able to flood the markets with synthetic rhino horn, you would devalue the horns. And if you devalue it enough, then there's no incentive to go and hunt a gigantic rhinoceros because you're not going to get any money back, mm-hmm. you know, f- comparatively speaking. However, there are critics who point out that the, this could have negative consequences as well. It could be that synthetic rhinoceros horn ends up driving up the price of real, actual rhinoceros horn. So that could end up creating an even greater incentive to hunt rhinoceroses. You mean if people can tell the difference if, between if them? People are yeah. able to, if people are able to know that this is an actual rhino horn versus synthetic, I mean, you could argue that it might just create a market for people to create synthetic rhinoceros horns and call them real rhinoceros horns. Uh, Which but, would be... Okay, I guess compared to yeah, compared to yeah. killing rhinos. But the yeah. the other element of this though is is the one that is pretty easy for you to say like yeah, that's not so great. It does it does nothing to weaken the, the it does nothing to create a stigma against the use of rhino horn, right? It, it right. reinforces the idea that rhino horn should be used for these cases. Yeah, and. This is a broader issue in conservation because, you know, it's it's clear that something needs to be done, but figuring out what exactly that is is way more difficult than just collecting the data. Yeah, there there's a lot of, you know, it is a very complex thing. And it's not like a, a one-size-fits-all approach is going to work in every case, right? There are going to be lots of different cases where very specific pathways need to be taken in order for us to be effective in conservation efforts, and those may not apply in other cases. Uh, and there's also just kind of a general disagreement on some very basic things. For example, the idea of naming wild animals. Uh, that O-Search app I was talking about, a lot of the sharks that you can follow have been given names. And it makes it really easy to refer to the specific shark, right? Like you're like, oh, it's Mary Lee. It's Flipper. Oh, it's Day. <laughs> yeah, whatever it may be. Uh, but it's easy to refer to them. A lot of them even have Twitter accounts, which were not made by O-Search, by the way. They were made by other people. But they they end up tweeting based upon where the shark is, kind of what that shark is probably experiencing uh, on any given uh, day. <laughs> Because uh, apparently, according to the O-Search folks, like, no, we didn't make this Twitter account. We're fine with them using it to talk about, you know, where the shark is and what's going on, but we didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, that's the thing, is that you anyone can make a Twitter account. Well, there's there are pro and con arguments about naming wild animals. So on the pro side, the you would argue that naming the animals makes us think of them as individuals, as opposed to thinking of the problem of poaching of lions – in one space. If we name the lions, then we can we, we we assign them an identity. We 
think of them as an individual. And we tend to get more emotionally invested in them as opposed to thinking about them as a larger thing. Massive yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not great at handling that kind of stuff. On the con side, however, first of all, naming them does create a psychological effect, right? Yeah. It's, it's, but we do get that emotional investment. And like we were talking about earlier, this could create a bias for research. Right. If you have the opportunity to, I don't know, if you have to pick between saving two different lions from poachers and one has a name and the other one doesn't, you're yeah. probably going to pick the one with the name. Right. Even if that's not necessarily the most, you know, Important I, I don't know why you would save. need to pick one versus another, but right. still, you need to you're make in choices. In a Bond movie. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it could be that, you, you know, the argument you make is that, well, the one that we didn't name actually represents a different uh, genetic uh, sure. uh, makeup than the other one and would have created better diversity within the population of lions. However, mm-hmm. we concentrate on the one that had the name. And, you know, that that it is a weird example, but it's a perfectly cromulent yeah. one. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, no, but bias in science is bad. Why yeah. did we only say Flipper the lion? Right. So uh, the other part of this is that the animals are wild animals. They're mm-hmm. not pets. We're, we shouldn't think of them as pets. We should think of them as they are wild. They belong in the wild. Naming them takes them a step away from that in our minds. And that can be a problem. Yeah, too. it can give the suggestion that they belong to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because or like our should... pets belong to us. Yeah. Sure, sure. Or, or that you should take a selfie with them. Or, yeah. 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 Or that you're just anthropomorphizing them, which is yeah. also a problem. You know, they're they're not human. Uh, we often think of animals in human terms because we are most of us human. We're really species centric. Yeah, yeah just uh, uh, you know, until we get all those those uh, uh, genetic modifications where we can all become cat people, this is just going to be a problem. So there, there's definitely some research that supports the idea that naming animals can help build support. Uh, and that's because, again, going back to that problem that we have with what what uh, uh, good nature travel actually called the abstractions of catastrophe. This idea that when you hear about a big group thing happening, it's hard for us to 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 process that information. Mm-hmm. Like we we have trouble thinking about any kind of news event that involves large numbers, whether it's animals or humans. It these stories hit us, and because we have trouble processing it, we don't have that emotional impact. So when you hear, you know, 10,000 members of whatever species, be it animal or maybe it's 10,000 people are affected negatively by something, that's hard for us to process. But if you focus on an individual story, we can connect to that. And that's where we have that emotional response. And this is true whether it's animals or humans, whatever it may be. If you are able to frame the plight of any group within an individual story, that's where we have the connection. And that's where we see people willing to make a response, whether it's positive or negative, whatever the case may be. You know, it all depends upon the the scenario involved. Um, And that then we might be more willing or able to participate in conservation efforts, whether it's through direct support uh, monetarily or by volunteering or uh, downloading one of these apps and participating in that respect, whatever it might be, we'd be more willing to do it because we have that emotional connection. Uh, and it's just harder to do when it's a big group because as humans, we just have trouble dealing with that kind of information. Yeah. Well, I mean, and as you implied earlier, 
that even applies when we're talking about humans. Yes. I mean, I think it's it's pretty commonly accepted wisdom of psychology that you're more likely to give a dollar to help a single kid with one name than a group of 20 people in need who don't have names. Yeah, one of the examples I, I've seen is that uh, when you when you see a, a commercial about uh, an organization that is dedicated to helping people like children in developing countries, yeah. they – Always have a child. This is yeah. This so-and-so. is Bruce. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, Bruce and has it, no shoes. Exactly. Help us. Help Bruce. Because we can focus on that. We can mm-hmm. identify with that, and we see the plight. When you look at a big one, big group of people, either we have problems processing it, or the problem itself seems so huge that we we're paralyzed. We feel like nothing we would do would make a dent at all. When that is not the case. So. Uh, I think that the naming issue is a complicated one, and I, I certainly see both sides. So it's not like I'm pro-name that animal camp all the way, but I, I I think I lean a little more toward being sympathetic toward that side, although I completely understand the concerns of the people who speak out against it. Along the same lines as naming is, I think, the idea of adopting a particular animal. I'm sure you've seen campaigns like mm-hmm. this, right? Like the Adopt a Shark program. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, where they use that kind of language. What you're really doing is, you know, you, you make a donation or you, you help support the scientific research in some way and you can have a, you know, a, a tracked animal that is is like your adopted animal. Now, mm. you don't actually have any, like, rights or powers over it. Right. Yeah, and you can't, like, go out on a boat and, like, find it and pet it, or you should not at any rate. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could, but I'll agree with you on should not, <laughs> depending on how accurate the geodata is. Yeah, yeah. The GPS, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, that seems like it raises similar issues, like, I can imagine how a campaign like adopt a shark or adopt a, you know, whatever the animal would be could help get more people involved and raise more money for, for the kinds of scientific research that could help protect these populations. But it could also give people the wrong idea about their relationship with the animals. Right. I don't know. And a lot of this also kind of, this conversation reminds me a lot of the one we had about de-extincting creatures. Mm -hmm. Right, right de-extinction process and the concerns we have about that technology as well. So if we if we get to a point where we could reliably bring an extinct species back, the fear – one of the fears is that it would remove our sense of urgency to preserve the ecosystems in which those creatures thrived. So sure, you might be able to bring a creature back, but if the ecosystem it, it lived in no longer exists, then all you've done is give it a death sentence again. Possibly, or you're mm-hmm. creating an invasive species to some mm-hmm. you know, system it wasn't ever meant to be in. So I've got a weird hypothetical question. Okay. Okay. Imagine we get to some kind of uh, singularity type future, whatever, you know, unimaginable levels of technological precision. Mm-hmm. Do you think humans should take steps to prevent all current species from going extinct? It will be. I think it will be unimaginably difficult to make those oh, determinations. Sure, and that's why I said, you know, singularity. In a singular no, 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 I don't, I don't mean like technologically it will be oh, difficult. Okay. I mean psychologically it will be a very difficult thing because if you think that you have the ability to prevent a creature from going extinct and I think it would be really hard to say, no, let's, let's let it go extinct. As, even if it, it was something that 
you could pretty clearly say this is going extinct and it's not because of the actions we humans have taken upon this earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if you think of it that way, like if you were able to somehow with really high uh, uh, certainty say – this creature is going extinct. We can tell from its numbers. It is not due to human activity. We should probably let it happen. Go ahead and let it go. Yeah. Because that's yeah. just evolution. But sure. I don't know that we could do that. Uh, well, there's, there's also a likelihood. I, I would, I would think that if a species was going extinct due to natural events, not mm-hmm. due to human, uh, interaction, that we probably wouldn't even know about it. Because the things that we know about are generally the, uh, we just built this apartment complex here and now. Uh, You're right. No. Yeah, you we, we'd have to assume now we're. Now Flipper the Toad. Now is, Flipper the Toad is dying off. We'd yeah. have to assume with we're, all his we're, Flipper buddies. We're in a future where the Internet of Things is so incredibly rich and robust that we have a, a finger on the pulse of practically every ecosystem. That That is hard to imagine because mm-hmm. the Earth is so incredibly so complicated. Yeah. And and keep in mind, there's a lot of it we have not explored. The oh, oceans yeah. are, are still largely mysterious to us. Yeah. So, Places that we cannot breathe, we tend to explore less thoroughly. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think that the best that we could do and and the best that we should should look to do, in my personal opinion, is just preventing you know you know shutting down the negative human human interactions with our environment yeah. and and therefore preventing that kind of extinction I'm of the same mind I mean it would be t- I, I'd hate to be the guy to make that call <laughs> to be like hey this cute fluffy bunny that lives in this particular region is dying out and it's completely due to natural you know the natural uh, progression of that ecosystem it would still be hard for me to say oh that's Let's let it go. Let it, Screw yeah. the bunny. Yeah, I'd be like, let's uh, let's let's rescue the bunny. Yeah, and um, let's uh, let's 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 make some uh, make some changes to that ecosystem so the bunny's okay. <laughs> I would that would be I'd have to fight against that, which is right. exactly what we were talking about with the. the you, cons. You'd make a safe space for the bunny at the expense of the algae that was formerly thriving in this swamp that you've transformed into a bunny-friendly yeah. meadowland. And, and then, then the algae the and then, ecosy- uh, uh, consequences. And you'd have to see a commercial about Flipper the algae saying, "Please help me." Either that, or you'd suddenly discover that that. <laughs> You know, this other creature that depended upon the algae is now dying out because you made this this arbitrary decision to save one species over another. And thus we get back to these things are complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with you, Lauren, completely that I, I think the best we could hope for is to try and end the impact that humans are having directly or otherwise on species, populations, and ecosystems uh, but, to, to mean, mitigate that as much as we possibly can. Yeah, as, that's the trick, right? As yeah. much as we can because, as we've said several times now, I mean, it's really difficult. I would say even with sci-fi levels of technology, I think it would be really hard to understand all the complex cause sure. and effect chains. That, I mean, you can understand some more easily than others. Sometimes yeah. you'll just say, like, okay – this is pretty clearly, you know, because we've built X here, we drove something out. Yeah. But there are other things where, you know, well, okay, so there's a new species that moved into this forest 
and they're out competing the previous species that filled the same niche and now that species is dying. Why did that species move into the forest? Mm-hmm. Well, then you'd have to go one step back and figure out what happened there. Right. Ultimately, it might be human causes or it might not. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, obviously we can only do the best we can with the information we have. And the problem as I see it right now is that we're not even doing the best we can with the information that's currently available. And that's, yeah. that's what we need to start start addressing is to let's 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 make that our best as opposed to having these 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 islands where people are trying really hard but there are large areas where that's either not a priority or people are just unaware of it whatever whatever the reason may be and do our best to fix that um all this being said, I, I am generally speaking an, an optimist. I think that there are a lot of very well-meaning people who are trying very hard to uh, push the message of, of conservation uh, out there. And I think a lot of people are sympathetic to it. It's just that uh, it's it can be, again, so overwhelming that it's difficult to know what you as an individual can do to make a positive impact. But there are lots of different resources out there. So I recommend – People go out, do a little simple research, look into the different organizations and actually do look into them. Don't just Google to find out which ones are active, but actually do research to see, you know, what sort of work do they do? Are Mm -hmm. they considered to be, uh, you know, an effective organization before you go any further, you know, putting your time or money into that? Uh, Obviously, because not everyone is doing a great job. Some organizations are and some aren't. Uh, so I would definitely recommend doing that research for yourself so that you can find one that's a good fit and that you feel good about if this is something that's important to you. And if there's some other topic that's really important to you that we have never talked about, you know, something about the future that you really wanted to hear about, I recommend you write in and let us know. Send us an email. That address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus while it lasts. <laughs> our, our handle at Twitter and Google Plus is fwthinking. Just search fwthinking on Facebook. We'll pop right up. Leave us a message. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. 